Amen. The reading is taken from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Nice to see you. Though you do seem a distance away. That's what they say, isn't it, when you come to worship in an Anglican church. Come early for a seat at the back. Well, let's pray that God would uh, speak to each of us this morning. Would you join me in praying? Father God, thank you for your presence with us this morning. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk to the title... Would you recognise God if he stood in front of you? Or you could put it the other way around. Would you recognise God if you stood in front of him? Comes to much the same thing. One of the rather endearing stories that circulated shortly after the Queen's death last year, and I've got every reason to think that it's a true story, is an event that happened when she was on holiday in her summer vacation, if you want to put it that way, up in her favourite palace in Balmoral. And it was a glorious day, much like today. And she took one of her estate managers with her and they just walked over the estate. And she was wearing her sunglasses and just enjoying herself when they bumped into two American tourists. And a conversation started and the Americans asked, is it true that the Queen lives near here? And so the gilly stepped forward and said, oh, yes, yes. And is it true that she often goes for walks around? Well, yes, she does from time to time. Well, do you know her at all? What's she like? And this whole conversation carried on. And, of course, it ended the way that these conversations always do, with the demand for some pictures and selfies and this sort of thing. And one of them handed the Queen, who had not been recognised, her phone said, would you mind taking a, a picture of the three of us, you know, the two of them and, and the gilly, and they all took turns, and uh, they all parted terribly amicably. Apparently, the Queen, roaring with laughter all the way home, and saying to uh, her accompanying man, can you imagine 
what they're going to feel like when they get home and show that pictures to the family. Can you, can you imagine? And thinking about it, I, I don't think there were many people in the world who didn't know what the image of Queen Elizabeth II looked like. There were not many times in her life when she would have passed unrecognized in any company. That's why that story is so rare and in some ways so precious. But the paradoxical odd thing is that failing to recognize God is altogether common, altogether common. And that's why this morning I am talking about this subject. Would, would you, would I recognize God if we stood in front of him? One of the things that's strange is that we often fail to recognize God despite having, most of us, some kind of a picture in our heads of what he must be like. I, I rather like the story of a very young child who was at primary school and during the art class, uh, the teacher was circulating around the schoolroom, looking over their shoulders, trying to give the children some encouragement. But she was rather stumped when she stood behind a child, just couldn't make out. So what are all these blobs on a sheet of paper? What, what are they? So trying to be encouraging, started a conversation with the child. That's a very interesting picture that you're drawing there. Yes, yes, it is. Very good, isn't it? Well, actually, I don't recognize it. What is it that you're drawing? Oh, I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, that must be difficult because no one knows what God looks like. Don't worry. They were when I finished my drawing. <laughs> and that's the thing is lots of us have got a kind of innate idea of what we think God is like. As you know, I'm a vicar. I'm the vicar of St. Michael's Chester Square. And one of the things that I've learned over years is, is to try and finesse, to try and keep hidden what I do for a living. Because people have a kind of set of responses about what happens when you say that you're a vicar. So I try and keep away from what do you do. But you can't always hide it and it will come out in the end. And actually the most common reaction is that people go, oh, God. And then you go, <clears throat> and try and recover from that. But another reaction, which I'm sure is to kind of try and keep you at arm's length and to shut down any conversation that might have followed, a quite a common reaction, which is sort of passive-aggressive, I think, really is, well, I don't believe in God, end of. But sometimes, sometimes actually it's not at all a hostile reaction, and a conversation takes place, and I'm sure it would with any of, of you this morning, and it's perfectly straightforward exchange of views. And not trying to be the clever dick, sometimes I have actually inquired gently, well, tell me about that God you say you don't believe in. I'd like to hear more about him. And as they describe the God they don't believe in, quite often I'm able to say, do you know, the God I believe in isn't like that either. Actually, I think it is true that many people don't believe in God, but all the same think it's a good idea to pray to him from time to time. It, it, you have to be really very brave to definitively say that you absolutely are counting him off as, as not existing. But I want to turn our attention to this. How, how would we recognize God if he were to stand in front of us? And the answer might surprise you because the first thing I would say is not easily. 
if the New Testament is anything to go by? Not easily. It, it won't surprise you that really what I'm talking about, speaking as a Christian, as a vicar, as a follower of Christ, is if Jesus stood in front of you, would you recognize him as God? And straight off the bat, John, at the beginning of his gospel, tells us it's quite hard. He said, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. And I think the Christmas story illustrates this supremely well. And we all know the Christmas story. On the, on the one hand, the innkeeper did not have an inkling that the couple that he shoved in the back in the stable were anything to write home about. But on the other hand, at the very same time, wise men came from the east and shepherds came from the fields and they beat, beat a path to the manger to worship. If you judge by outward appearances, like that couple on holiday in Scotland who failed to recognize the queen, if you judge by outward appearances, then you're not going to recognize God easily in Jesus. Because you could say, in Jesus, God appeared as a commoner. Though when we scrutinize his life, there's really nothing common about it. Outwardly, he just didn't look the part. He wasn't accompanied by an impressive entourage. He was accompanied by 12 randoms from upcountry Galilee. He hadn't studied at an impressive, distinguished rabbinic school. He had none of the kind of trappings and trophies that we usually expect to come with people of influence. I don't know what the status symbols were of his day, but if there were such things as go faster camels, he didn't have one of them. He didn't have impressive clothes or come and live in royal palaces. And yet, and yet he drew crowds, often admiring and full of devotion. And he also attracted rejection and criticism and ultimately was sentenced to death. So what I want to do in the short time that we're going to spend together is to take you on a little guided tour, and it's incredibly selective, to stop and look at a, a few aspects of the life of Jesus, and really posing a question, setting it up for you to go away and hopefully maybe read an account of Jesus' life and ponder some of these questions could it be that when we stand in front of Jesus, it's God we're standing in front of? Actually, many years ago, when I was an undergraduate, it was a friend of mine who was a follower of Jesus who challenged me to read an account of Jesus' life because I was really rather um, out there with my unbelief. And eventually, she had to say, have you ever read an account of Jesus' life for yourself? And the honest answer was, as an adult, no. I kind of relied on the fact, surely I'd accumulated the knowledge in passing at school one way or another. But actually sitting down and reading an account of Jesus' life, no, I had not done that. And she said, well, I suggest that you do. She didn't say it aggressively. She just said, you know, if you really want to have a discussion about Christianity, you need to know who we're talking about. So if in time you want to read an account of Jesus' life, I suggest you read John's Gospel. Now, I didn't immediately run off and read John's Gospel, but there was a sense in which curiosity was getting the better of me. I didn't own a Bible, but I knew tucked away in one of the common rooms at Exeter University, there was a stack of Gideon's New Testaments. And I remember creeping to the place where that stack of New Testaments were and looking around the room to make sure no one was looking and then pinching one. 
and thinking, you know, I don't want anyone to see that I've got a New Testament. I didn't feel bad about pinching one because they were there to be pinched. But it didn't seem a very cool thing to do. And then I went off and I read John's Gospel. I've got, actually got some copies of John's Gospel here and I'm going to offer them to you later on. It's very short. It wouldn't take you very long to read it. And, and the first thing that struck me when I started to read was that Jesus was very clear about who he thought he was. And very uncompromising, actually. He thought and claimed that he was God himself, come in the flesh. And he said startling things like, when you've seen me, you have seen God. When you've heard me talk, you have heard what God would say. His teaching, if you like, is incredibly self-centered because he says he is the one, the chosen one, God's chosen one. I remember very, very early on in, in this book, reading one of Jesus' claims. It, it's actually now a very familiar claim to me, but back then it, it rather surprised me. I think I thought, if you let God too near you in life, life will take a turn for the worse. All the pleasures of life will disappear and suddenly life will get incredibly challenging. I don't know why I thought that. It, it, it was a prejudice, I suppose. So when I read God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life, I was surprised. Because the idea that God so loved the world that he'd come and visit us had never entered my head. And I thought, well, it's going to be very interesting to see how you prove that to us. Well, anyone can make claims. We know that. Anyone can make claims. The question is, can you substantiate them? Can you back them up? Are they credible claims or just stupid claims? And I think one of the things that should arrest us as we're trying to make head or tail of this first Jesus is some of the things he did. Quite simply, some of the things he did beg the question, what kind of person is this? And that's why I had the reading read that we just had read. It's not the most important thing that Jesus ever did in his life. In some ways, it's rather incidental. But if you can think back to it, it's a story when his followers and Jesus were in a boat. Now, the followers were fishermen. They knew about fishing. They knew about boats. They knew about lakes. And a great storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep with his head on a cushion. That's what Mark recalls for us. And the disciples wake Jesus up, and they say, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, stands up and we're told he rebukes the wind and the waves. And it's actually recorded what he says. He speaks to them and he says, quiet, be still. And there's complete calm. If you like, you could say he succeeded where King Canute failed. It's extraordinary authority that he has. And the disciples scratched their heads and we're told, they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves would obey him? And as you read the life of Christ, a very simple question that I'm putting to us is, how do you explain what kind of person can do the things that he did? And you'll be familiar with them, even if you're not familiar in the nitty gritty detail with Jesus' life, because we know that he did things like feed 5,000 people, or raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, or turned water into wine, or walked on water. So it's 
a question, what kind of man is this? And the second thing jumped out at me, and I hope will jump out at you when you read the life of Jesus, is the kind of life he lives. And it is a life full of kindness. It's a life full of compassion. It's a life full of reaching out to people who are struggling, who cannot make sense of life. In fact, it was said of him, God has come to help his people. But it wouldn't just be the things that he did that will make an impression on you. It's also the words that he spoke, his teaching. I've become a bit of a fan. I'm almost kind of addicted to listening to this podcast called The Rest is History. And these two historians who are well-qualified historians who do not claim to be followers of Christ or Christians, they make that really clear. But when they had one week devoted to talking about Jesus of Nazareth, one of the things they just said, he is without question the most influential teacher the world has ever known. And to me, that's interesting because if God were to come in the flesh and if he was to teach people, I wouldn't want his teaching to go out of date. I would want what he said and taught to have everlasting significance. And apparently, it still does. It's not altogether complimentary to the religious teachers of his time that one of the things they said about Jesus, one of the standout things was when he taught in the synagogues, he taught as someone with authority and not as one of the scribes. That gives a lot of weight, doesn't it? And actually rather resonates with my experience. I, I sat through a lot of chapel when I was at school and I sat through a lot of sermons. And my impression, fairly or unfairly, was that most preachers were dead dull, very boring, and they just went, amen. And you went home none the wiser. So, so when I read John's gospel, I was expecting Jesus to do much the same, go, amen. Not at all like that. It's absolutely crystal clear. And the stories that he tells, we know them as the parables, they still have people reading them, learning from them, discussing them today. Let me tell you what C.S. Lewis said about the teaching of Jesus. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. And the reason C.S. Lewis says this is because at the center of Jesus's teaching is himself. He teaches that he is God in the flesh. And either you're mad to say that or you're evil to say that or it's true. Which is it? But I have a feeling that if Jesus were here and giving this talk, he would actually be pointing us to two different events and inviting us to scrutinize them. And I'm, I'm gonna mention them both, but only really talk about one. The two events that he highlights as being of particular significance, a bit like his calling card, if you like, are his death and resurrection. He talked about his death to the disciples 
intimately and openly, three times warning them, taking them aside. It's not what they expected would happen. And saying to them, the day's going to come when I am going to be scourged, mocked, tortured, put to death, crucified. And three days later, I'll rise again. And they could not get their heads around this at all because why on earth should he suffer such a painful death like that? But Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, e.g. crucified, that's when I will draw people to myself. If you like, the cross is his calling card or it's a magnet. And I, I just want to explain even just so briefly and rather superficially why that is so because I know as I read John's gospel it certainly drew me to Jesus I think most obviously and very stand out is it shows God's love it's like God is reaching out to us saying I love you this much there's no end to the lengths I would go to if it was going to draw you and me together that's basically what the cross is saying and in answer to my question to myself and to God, God, how are you going to show that you love the world so much? His, part of his answer is, well, I'm going to come and live amongst you, suffer as the world suffers, and die for you. That's how I'll show you that I love the world. It's an extreme demonstration of the love of God. But it's more than that. It's also, if you like to see it this way, a bridge into the presence of God. It's restoring a broken relationship. Here is healing and forgiveness. I wonder, have you ever been blanked? Has anyone absolutely cut you dead? I, I, it doesn't happen all that often, does it? And it happens to me more than it happens to you because I have a twin brother and he looks extremely like me. And sometimes people don't know if they're meeting or walking past me or my twin brother. And uh, I think I'm being blanked, but actually, you know, the person doesn't know me or vice versa. But it did happen once in, in, uh, when I was uh, working in Cambridge. And it was very near my beginning of the time there. And, and it seemed very strange behaviour to me. On a, on a particular day, there was a very large gathering in the church which I was being made vicar of so I think it was a Saturday and um, you know the bishop rolls up and there's a certain amount of ceremony and you're installed into the church it's, here's your new vicar big welcome to Rupert and I definitely saw this man sitting next to his wife in the front row the professor of something or other of some college very distinguished man that's why he's in the front row and I definitely we eyeballed each other during the service so I know he was there and the very next day um, I went to queue for a sandwich at Pret, and this man was in front of me in the queue. And we eyeballed each other, totally, definitely. And I went to say something to him, and he absolutely blanked me. Well, I've forgiven him, though it doesn't sound like it. The thing is, the th why do I tell that story? The thing is actually something we've all got in common. We have totally blanked God on occasion. I know that for sure. It, it, it comes naturally. It's a template for life that we have chosen, either deliberately or just because it comes with the rations, to live life as if God doesn't exist. There is a broken relationship at the heart of how we do life, and someone has to mend it. And Jesus says, I'm willing to mend it. 
I died to mend it. I am your way back into God's presence. I want to tell you about an incident that happened last week. And uh, I think, I don't know how many countries this could happen in, but in, in England, people are very strange when it comes to dogs. Um, people love dogs disproportionately. And if you own a dog, uh, people, it will be a common experience to you that you'll be walking your dog and people will come up and they will talk to your dog. And, and they won't talk to you, but they'll feel very at home talking to your dog. And um, last week, I, I, I own a, a little Cairn Terrier, and uh, I'm not particularly devoted to Truffle, but she seems to be part of our family. And if you own a dog, you have from time to time to get them seen to at a dog groomer. So I went to the dog groomers last week in Wiltshire, and I'm sit I arrived five minutes early to pick up the dog. So I have to sit down there in this very hot, stuffy room, and there are three other dogs being whatever you do to dogs when they're groomed. And for some reason, this woman sitting there decides to tell us the history of her and her dog. And, and she's talking like to us as if we're madly interested in the kind of freedom that you don't expect. And she's rabbiting on. And she says, um, oh, yes, 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 that's our dog. Yes, do you know he was abandoned? We got him from a rescue center. Yes, and he was chipped. He was chipped, so we were able to track him down. We, knew, we could find the owner's address, and he was originally called Hunter, but we couldn't go around shunting, uh, shouting for a dog called Hunter, so we renamed him Honey. Anyway, when, when we went to track down the owners, they'd done a runner. They didn't live in, in the house anymore, and they just abandoned the dog on the street. Ah, oh. and now we've got the dog, but you know what? The dog, poor honey, suffers from separation anxiety. We can't leave him alone for three minutes. And if he goes for a walk, he has to be ahead of us. Now, why am I telling you such a stupid canine story? Partly because I knew you'd love it. But also because the odd thing is, we have separation anxiety from God from leaving him out. And when God looks at us, he sees that we're chipped. But not in quite the same way. We're chipped in the sense that we're damaged goods. We're chipped in the sense that when you leave God out of your life, it's absolutely certain that you will be damaging other people. The legacy of your life in this world will include breakages. That's true of all of us. And we understand, don't we, that breakages have to be paid for. It's such a simple concept. You know, if, if, if you went into one of the shops around here and clumsily knocked an item to the floor and it broke, you wouldn't really be complaining if a shop owner said, I'm sorry, you'll have to pay for that. You'd say, that's fair, that's justice. And the thing is, when God finds us, and he came to earth and did find us, and he looks at our life, he could, if he wanted, say, your breakages need to be paid for. But instead, on the cross, he says, I'll pay. I'll pay. Now, how do I know that? I know that because the very last words that Jesus shouted from the cross is a curious word. In Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. And it's translated in English, it is finished. 
And I think I've always read that in the past, for a long time anyway, as if Jesus was saying, I'm finished, the game's up, the end. But that's so not what it means. What it really means is an accountant's word. It means it's paid for. It's paid for. The debt is written off. There is nothing more to pay. Reconciliation and healing start here. God would want you to know that. That's what it means when it says, God so loved the world, he sent his son, that whoever trusts him and believes in him won't perish. You won't have to pay. I won't have to pay because God has paid for us. Now, I'm not going to dwell on it, but the other thing is the resurrection. And, and I only recently discovered that the life expectancy of Jesus' day was just 30 years. So I guess that if you know that the whole of life expectancy is just 30 years, that the answer to the question, what's going to happen when I die, is really pressing from a very early age. It's quite pressing actually for us today. And all I will say is that the followers of Christ were absolutely sure that death was not the end of the story. And they were sure that nothing would separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And they talked about that over and over and over again. But as I wrap this talk up, it wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you about an event that's going to take place so that you can be prepared. Because the thing is, I asked the question at the beginning, would you recognize God if you stood in front of him and he stood in front of you? And although not many people like to talk about this today, it is an essential part of what the scriptures teach us that one day every one of us is going to stand in front of God and you will recognize him and he will recognize you too. Because on that day, judgment day, his authority will be revealed. It won't be cloaked in camouflage. I don't know what God wears when he's not wearing mufti, but there'll be something about him where his authority will be absolutely out there. And we're told in scripture, very graphically, every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we'll all appear before the judgment seat of God. And so really, we need some kind of answer to your own satisfaction. Is he savior of the world or not? Would you let him be your savior or not? Will you let him write over your debt? I've paid for all of this. Rupert's in the family now, and you could put your name there. Because time after time, Jesus reached out to the disciples and to the crowds and said, you could start a new life now if you choose. But it means coming to me and letting me have influence in your life. It means making me the center of your life. It means the very talents that I've given you, you give them back to me. The very time that I'm giving you, you give it back to me. The purpose of your life from now on is to live to please me. That's the offer on the table. Will you follow me? Even if it costs you everything, will you follow me? Because I will give you everlasting life and a purpose for living that will thrill you and fulfill you. But it's only found in me. Friends, I'd love you. I'd love you to accept that offer. But I want you to know what you're buying into. And so I'm going to end this talk there. 
and just say, there are copies of John's gospel and they're strewn around tactically so that on the way you can just take one. And um, there's no CCTV out there. We're not kind of tracking it like that. We just want as many people as possible to have an opportunity to read for themselves an account of the life of Jesus and to make an informed decision as to whether to follow him or not and whether it's credible that he is the son of God in the flesh or not.